Father, would you be with us this morning? God, we want your spirit to change us today as we engage and interact with your word. Would you make us new? You would give us this hope that is found only Jesus in you. Would you help us understand what it means to live that hope out in the midst of our lives? We ask that you would do it. We trust you. We ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to be soft and transformed into the image of your son. Would you work as only you can? We pray it in your name. Amen. When you think about heaven, what thoughts come to mind? Just right now, when I say that word, when I say heaven, what do you think of? Jesus, that's a good answer. That's, let's close in prayer. No, okay. Um, ruining the punchline for me. Um, uh, as we've been walking through this book of Revelation, as we come to the very end of the book, we're going to be looking at chapters 21 and 22 today. But one of the critiques of John, who's the author of this book, about specifically the heaven, because there's only really two chapters at the end about what this looks like, one of the critiques is that, man, heaven's not that interesting. And if you're honest, have you ever thought, like, man, heaven seems kind of boring? Whether it's a caricature of what you think heaven's going to be like, or we kind of have these ideas of like it's just going to be clouds and harps, and we're just going to be kind of standing around holding each other's hands, and we're just going to sing like shine, Jesus, shine, until we're for eternity. And you go like, ah, I don't know about that. Like, and if church is supposed to be like a tangible taste of uh, the new creation and heaven on earth, and you go like, man, I don't... I don't even like church. Like, like it's boring. I, I'm just looking at my watch, going, when can we eat? And you go, I have to do this for eternity? You go, ah, this doesn't sound very exciting. And so what John is going to give us in chapters 21 and chapter 22, hopefully will reframe our understanding of a vision of a new heaven and a new earth that we can actually have hope for, that it won't be boring that we need a reinterpretation of what the Bible actually teaches about heaven. And to help us do that, I think a, a question, it will help frame our idea of that. And, and here's the question. What's more important to you out of these two categories, um, where you are or who you're with? Where you are or who you're with? Now, obviously, the ideal is to be somewhere you love with someone you love. That's what we're all after, but to frame it a different way, let's imagine that you get an all-expenses um, trip to, to Quartzsite, Arizona. Is anybody from Quartzsite in here? Okay, good. I don't want to offend anybody. Oh, maybe there is somebody from Quartzsite. So Quartzsite's probably not a destination I would want to stay at. When I drive through on the way to California, if you've ever been on the border, it's a little town. It's got the, the queue on the mountain. I always tease my wife that we're going to retire there, and she's not a fan of that joke. Um, but, but Quartzsite, some of you, Phoenix is your Quartzsite. You don't like it here at all. Um, uh, but, but in the midst of that, you get to go with somebody that you really love like your best person, and you get to spend time there. So that's option one, courtside with somebody you love. Option two, you get an all-paid trip to Hawaii, and it's beautiful, and you get to stay in the best resort, and the beaches are unbelievable, and it's not going to be crowded, and it's amazing. But you have to share a room with the person you despise most. 
which option do you choose? Quartzite or Hawaii? And I think what that exposes in us, because I'm like, I'm, I'm not going to go to Hawaii with that person that's in my mind. You all have that person in your mind, right? Log that away. We're going to come back to that later. But like that person, like I don't, even if it's the most unbelievable place, like I don't want to spend time there with the person that's really, really hard for me because we're created as relational beings. And the point is this, this idea that it's not about where you are, but it's about who you're with. It's not about where you are, but it's about who you're with. And that's what we're going to see in the midst of Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. And Eugene Peterson talks about heaven because sometimes we have this vision or think about heaven in this idea like it's just eternity and we can't wrap our minds around that. That's too hard for us to understand and think. And eternity is not a perpetual future, Peterson says, but a perpetual presence because it's actually about who we are going to be with. For eternity, not necessarily where we are going to be. Peterson goes on, I think this is helpful language for us, as he talks about Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22, and he specifically talks about the critique that some people have in John, going like, ah, heaven doesn't sound that interesting, it kind of seems boring, what's the deal with these measurements in chapter 21, I don't quite understand this, this doesn't make sense to me. He talks specifically about the author John when he says this, He says, he will not appeal to our fantasies. He's a pastor. He's not a salesman promoting an interest in heaven by using the bait of our lust or greed or pride. And we, unused to appeals based on anything other than self-interest, do not know what to make of it. This is not a paradise for consumers. John's heaven is not an extension of human community upwards, but an invasion of God's rule and presence downwards. So as we look at chapter 21 and chapter 22, as we close out this series, what I want to do is because there's so much text, I want to summarize what's happening in these two chapters, and then we're going to stop and we're going to sit on verses 1 through 6, what we just read. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up and just as reference, as we go through and look at this summary of what what is this new heaven and this new earth? How is it described? Because there are elements of the place that it's described, but it is way more about the person that we get to spend eternity with. So chapter 21, or, um, chapter 21, verses 1 through 8, is describing this new heaven and this new earth. And we're going to come back to that at the end, really walking through verses 1 through 6. And then verses 9 through 27, it's this description of a new Jerusalem. So John has done this multiple times, if you've been with us. Um, he hears one thing. Remember in Revelation chapter 5, he's, he's weeping. John is weeping because he sees that there's this scroll and it's sealed up and no one is worthy to un, uh, undo the scroll. And he's just undone because of the sin, because God's plans are in that scroll and nobody's worthy. And then this elder taps him on the shoulder and he says something to him. He says, wait, there's somebody that's worthy. And then he tells him, he hears, John hears, the lion of Judah, and then what does he see? A slain lamb. We see this later on, this, this, this idea that John is giving this literary instruction of going like, man, he sees, or he hears 144,000, and then he sees an army from all tribes and tongues and nations. And then he does it again here. He hears this bride adorned for her husband, and then what does he see? He sees a city, this new Jerusalem, and that's the description in verses 9 through 27, this dimensions and the description of this place, 
And in this place, in this new heaven and this new earth that's promised for God's people, everything is perfectly beautiful, everything is perfectly aligned, and everything is perfectly secure. Everything is perfectly beautiful. Um, It's described, this place is this precious jewel, clear as crystal. It's unbelievable. We have little moments and glimpses, whether it's Hawaii or other places, you see a sunset and you go, man, that's unbelievable. I don't know. I saw the moon this morning. I don't know if anybody saw that. It was massive. You go, okay. We just have a glimpse of what the new heaven and the new earth will be like. It's going to be unbelievably beautiful. Then you look in verses 15 through 17, and it's got these measurements. You go, what what is that about? Why are there descriptions of that in this chapter? I think it's giving weight to everything will be perfectly aligned, right? Um, Some of my staff know that uh, I just have problems, and... um, one of my problems is uh, I, I was a visual communications major uh, in undergrad a long time ago. Like, I like things straight. I like this. This would, I, I couldn't do it, right? Like, I have to have everything straight. And so, right, even right now, I'm straightening it. My, my staff know. They, they'll come into my office, and they'll just do this to two of my books. And I see it right away, and I just can't. I, I, I have issues, right? Like, some of it, the good part of it is, like, God creates order out of chaos, and he's, he's putting order back into play in the new heaven and the new earth with these measurements. Um, but, and then there's a bad element to it. It's like my own unhealth is just spilling out and straight, because, like, well, I can't control you, but I can control this, right? So that makes me feel better. I just need to see somebody. It's just true. Um, all that to say... Why, why is this section in here? Because in the new heaven and the new earth, everything will be perfectly aligned. And even think in your own life and think in your own heart and think of the relationships that are crooked, they're bent, they're messed up. Like this new place, everything will be in its proper order. And we could go, the curbs out on the street won't be crooked and busted, <laughs> Right? The, the concrete's not going to be all cracked. It's going to be perfectly in order. It's going to be perfectly beautiful. It's going to be perfectly aligned. And then we start to see this language in verse 27 um, in the back of the chapter. And even before that, there's these walls and these gates, and everything will be perfectly secure. That we won't have to worry about danger. We won't have to worry about sin. We can be fully freed up to be who we are in this new heaven and this new earth. And then in verse 27, it says, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is false, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. In this place, there is descriptions about this place. It is about the person, but there's, there's parts that are, are about this place that everything is pure, perfectly beautiful. Everything is perfectly aligned. Everything is perfectly secure. And John goes on in the next chapter, in chapter 22, starting in verse 1 through 5, and, and the metaphor builds. It's not just a city, but it's a garden city. And it's this vision of this new Eden. Because what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is this perfect environment for God's people, this garden for them to flourish and partner with God. And then it gets distorted and disrupted in chapter 3. And what God is doing at the end in chapter 22 is he's saying, man, it's going to be all put back together again. And there's not going to be a curse any longer. It says in the text in the beginning of chapter 22. Now, again, it's hard for us to imagine that, that there's no longer going to be a curse of sin. 
which is what happens in Genesis chapter 3. If you're unfamiliar with the story, God creates humanity perfect in right relationship with him, in right relationship with each other, in right relationship with the ground, the creation. But what happens in Genesis chapter 3? They get tricked. This dragon, this enemy, this serpent that we see show up in Revelation chapter 12 and onward tricks them into believing that God's holding out on them and that they should disobey God for their own good, for their own autonomy, to do what they want. You could be like God. And they bite the bait, and there's a hook on the end, and there's consequences of that called the curse or called the fall. And we experience it in life every single day as humans. And what this is saying, what Revelation chapter 22 says, is that curse will not be found any longer. Can you imagine your life without sin? And some of us, if it really isn't about where we are, but about who we're with, and if you're honest with yourself and you go, man, like I know that the the blood of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection covers me and allows me to enter into that space when it's all said and done. But you know other people that have claimed Jesus and they call themselves Christians, but maybe they've really hurt you. Maybe they've really betrayed you. Maybe they're the person that you don't want to go to Hawaii with. And you go, I have to spend eternity with that person? And our vision of heaven goes, like, ah, I don't know. Like, hopefully they're on the other side and I don't have to see. It's for eternity. You're going to see them at some point. Here's the problem. We have that picture of heaven, but we have it with our lenses of sin on it. That person, if they're truly a Christian, if they've truly sacrificed and given their life to Christ and they've they've taken the grace and mercy of Jesus, they've exchanged their life for him and they're guaranteed in the book of life, they're guaranteed for heaven, even if they've hurt you and there's a falling out, do you know that when you interact with them, their sin will be gone? You won't interact with them the way you are interacting with them now. All the selfishness will be gone. It'll be wiped away. Not only will their sin be gone, but you know what? Your sin will be gone too. So when I interact with that person and I'm judging and I'm analytical and I'm harsh with them because of what they've done, that will be gone. And do you know that we'll have perfect restoration? And you might go like, I can't even, I can't even imagine that. But that's what the text is saying. No longer will the curse be found in any or all things. It's going to be wiped away in this place. Then the finish of chapter 22, there's a lot there, but there's three phrases that show up in verse 7, verse 12, and verse 20. If you look down at your Bible, I think there's something that Jesus is trying to communicate to us through John. And this is Jesus saying this phrase. Look, I'm coming soon. Look, I'm I'm, I'm coming soon. Keep your eyes on the horizon because I am going to return a second time. I'm going to be there. I'm going to arrive. Why is that important for us to be reminded in the midst of this new heaven and this new earth, this place that John is describing? Because it's more about who you're with than it's about where you are. And when we're with Jesus, he makes all things right. He can only hold us the way that our hearts need to be held. And he gives this promise. Why does the promise of Jesus returning and returning soon matter to the original audience? And why should it matter to us today? 
If you've been with us, we've been talking about the original audience that, that John wrote to these seven churches in chapters two and chapter three, as they're described as Jesus is talking to them. They're dealing with suffering. They're in the midst of the Roman culture. Uh, Rome does not like Christians so much so they're, they're throwing them into Colosseums to, to be eaten alive in front of groups that are cheering. They're, they're uh, lit on fire to light the city. They're dying for their faith. And in the midst of this letter and in the midst of uh, the, the way the martyrs have cried, they say, God, how long are you going to let this happen? They're dealing with suffering. And anytime we're in the midst of suffering, what do we need most? We need hope. We need a true hope. When we do marriage counseling for folks, my wife and I at times, um, and if, if there's something that's happened in their marriage or they hurt each other in the marriage, surprise, everybody hurts each other in their marriage, right? Because we're humans and we're sinful and we do all those things. But if there's something that needs to be solved, the question is, how much hope do you have? Because if we're in that conversation with those folks and there's zero hope, it's really hard to move forward. But if there's just a little hope, and there's a glimmer of hope that God can restore, that he can resurrect, that he can redeem, we can work with that. And so what do we need most in the midst of our suffering? What are the people that were originally reading this letter, what did they need most? They needed true hope. And so as we look back to verses 1 through 6, I want to unpack the three, three ideas of this hope. And we're going to double down. We're going to talk about hope actually next week as well as we start our series in Advent. What does it look like to wait in the midst of needing hope? But for this passage, I want to look at the nature of hope. I want to look at the need of hope and the way to access that hope. So the nature of this hope that Jesus brings when he returns a second time, um, the need for that hope in, in a world that's broken and, and we're hurt in the midst of it, and then how do we access that hope if it's true? So the nature of hope, look back at verse 1 and verse 2 of chapter 21. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. We talked about this before, just for context. Um, it doesn't mean there won't be the ocean in the new earth. The, the sea represented metaphorically chaos, for the original readers. Man, the sea was scary. That's where you went to die. That's where the end of the earth, because the earth was flat. That's where, that's where you fell off. And what this is saying is not that there won't be ocean, but there won't be any more chaos when the new heaven and the new earth come. Verse 2, then I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, looks into the language, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the nature of this hope is not us floating up and, and living amongst the clouds, but actually God is going to come down on this physical planet, on earth, and he's going to make all things new. For some of us, we don't have a vision of heaven that way because of how we've been taught. I know for me, uh, passages like 2 Peter chapter 3, talking about like um, the, the, the burning of the earth, and we go like, oh, God's, like the matter doesn't matter, material stuff doesn't matter, we don't have to be environmentalists, we, because it's all gonna burn, and, and God's gonna crumple up the earth, he's gonna throw it away in the wastebasket, and he's gonna bring something brand new. But actually, Peter, if you read it in the context, he's talking about the day of judgment, which we've been talking about in the previous chapters. So fire is not to, to destroy, fire is actually to purify. So God is going to come back to this physical place, and he's going to make all things right and all things new. And so the material matters. 
it ought to matter to us. We ought to be good stewards of this earth. It's God's creation. And in the midst of that, we look at Jesus. As the New Testament writers talk about Jesus, they talk about he is the first fruits of this new creation. What does that mean? When he raises from the dead on the third day, he has a physical body. What does he do with his disciples? He sits with them, and he conversates with them, and he hugs them, and he eats fish. Because the physical matters. And so for us to be reminded of that, that we're going to get new bodies without sin in this new heaven and this new earth. That is the nature of this hope. The world we've been longing for, we will begin to experience if you're found in Christ. That's the nature of hope. Let's look at the need of hope. Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. Sun Devil fans, I don't know. Um, Just had to get that in there. For the former things will be passed away. Verse 5, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I'm making all things new. What area of your life do you need made new? Do you have those areas of brokenness, of hurt, of pain that you need made new? That's the hope, that's the promise. For those of us that are found in Christ. And again, the context, he's writing to people that are suffering for their faith. And you see how the early church responded in the midst of their suffering. There's writings that that as they're, they're being impaled, as they're dying, they're singing songs and hymns of faith to trust God for this new reality. Because in the midst of the worst suffering, they still have a true hope found in Jesus. How do you deal with your suffering? Tim Keller has two helpful illustrations when talking about suffering and and having a true hope in the midst of your suffering because we're all going to suffer in this world because what we see happen in Genesis 3, there's cracks, there's crevices, there's hurts in us done to us, us done to other people. We live in a world of suffering. So how do you manage and how do you navigate suffering in this world and in this life? Keller gives two illustrations that I think are are helpful. He says uh, his first illustration has to do with two men that get thrown into a deep, dark dungeon for 10 years. But right before they're thrown into this deep, dark dungeon, one of them is told your family's still alive. The other one, as they get thrown into the dungeon for 10 years, says actually your family is dead. They, they, They didn't make it. So they have 10 years to be in this dungeon. The first man... Because his family is alive, he goes, okay. He makes it for the whole 10 years. The second man that's told his family is dead, he dies pretty quickly in the dungeon. What's the difference between those two men? One has hope and one doesn't. Another illustration I think that he gives that is helpful in this is he says two men are working in a watch factory and they're assembling these watches for 10 hours a day 
They're doing it, and it's just tedious work. And one is told at the end of this year, you're going to receive $20,000. It's one year's work of assembling watches. You're going to get $20,000 for your work. The other one is told you're going to get $20 million for your work. So this one that's going to receive $20,000 at the end of the year, he's really frustrated at his job. He doesn't like the tedious work, and he just kind of gives up and quits. But the one that's going to receive $20 million, he actually likes his work. And even though it's tedious, he kind of finds value in it. What's the difference between those two men? Is hope. When you think about your life and you think about death, what do you think happens when you die? Because some of us may be in this room or definitely outside this room. They go, well, actually, there's nothing that happens after you die. It's, it's it. That's all it is. We just we, we cease to exist. Some people think, well, I think there's a heaven. There has to be something else. And hopefully my good outweighs my bad or definitely my good outweighs my neighbor's good because I know what they do on the weekend. And so, like, I, I should be able to get into this afterlife, whatever it might be. But if you have those perspectives, you're like the person getting $20,000 or being told that, man, your family didn't make it. You don't have an actual hope. So how do you deal with suffering? If you don't believe there's anything on the other side of this life or you think, ah, hopefully I'll get in, like how do you deal with the pain that, that, that is real in your life? And that's why Christians, that's why hope is so true. That if we look at this new creation, we go, man, it's going to be perfectly beautiful. It's going to be perfectly aligned. All sin will be wiped away. I'll be in full relationship with God again. I'll be in full relationship with people. I'll be in full relationship with creation. That helps us walk through suffering because we have a light at the end of the tunnel. But for the non-Christian, how do you deal with the suffering and the pain of life? Just try to numb it some more. And maybe I'll numb it a little bit more. And it doesn't work. But for the Christian, it really is about this relationship that you will have one day apart from sin. So if that's the nature of hope and the need for hope, how do we access that hope? What does that look like for us? Verse 6, chapter 21 says, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The way the Bible talks about how we can access this true hope in the midst of a suffering world is only one way. There's only one access point. There's only one true well that has the water of life, and we run to these other wells in our life, and we try to drink from this other water, and it's poisoned water, and we don't know it. Sometimes it'll give us momentary satisfaction, but at the end of the day, it will infect us in a bad way, and there's only one well that we actually get true life, and that's in the person of Jesus. That's his life, his death, his resurrection. That's the only way we can know true hope. Everywhere else you go will fail you. But Jesus will not. Verse 6, how, how, how is there an offer for this water that our deepest longings of our soul be satisfied in the person of Jesus? How is it without cost? That's what the text says, come and drink and it's without price. Because there was a price that was paid. It just wasn't yours. It was Jesus. His perfect life, his death, and his resurrection on the cross is what enables us to have new life. 
And that cost, as we looked at it a couple years ago in the Gospel of John, as Jesus is on the cross, one of the last words he says, do you remember? He says, I thirst. I don't think he's talking about his physical thirst in the midst of his suffering that was physical. I think what he is referring to in that text and in his dialogue is that he's experiencing cosmic hopelessness in that moment. That the father is turning himself away from the son. For the first time, he's not connected with the father. And the weight of his sin, of your sin, of my sin, is bearing down on the shoulders of Jesus in that moment. And he's experiencing pain and separation. And he dies, a death I deserve, a death you deserve, so that we can be made whole again, so that we can, in this place, come and receive living water to change us. So even in the midst of the deaths of our life and the suffering, loss of a job, loss of a relationship, loss of a friendship, loss of a loved one, we all have those types of death, we have hope in a resurrection. That's what Christians believe. That's what the Bible teaches, that we actually have a living hope because the tomb is not empty. He is raised from the dead that Jesus, if we put our faith in him, we have access to a hope that the world doesn't have access to. And it's a true hope. We have some friends that just had a baby last week and now they have five. They've got lots of kids. They're all girls wild. I pray for my buddy a lot. And uh, in the midst of it, uh, in between our, their last birth and, and then this birth, they uh, suffered a miscarriage. And it was, the pregnancy was pretty far along. And it was a boy. It was their first boy they'd been praying for and hoping for. And it, it, was, it was far along. She had to birth the baby. And it was just so sad. and So tragic. And then she gets pregnant again. And they just had their little girl. And they named her Sunday. And they said her name is Sunday because death doesn't have the last word. Isn't that good? And for Christians, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of the stuff we're going through, and we're disoriented, we don't know why we're experiencing this suffering. Again, whether it's something you're doing yourself, you're doing to someone else, or somebody is doing to you, you feel this betrayal, you feel this hurt, you feel like, man, it's not right in the world. This is our hope, that there is a Sunday coming, that the, the death doesn't have the last word, that resurrection hope is real, and we experience it in the person of Jesus. And so when he says, I'm coming back, look for me, I'm coming back. That gives us hope to walk through our suffering in our life. And it gives us the only true hope that we can have. And the reason we remind ourselves of that hope every single week, we do these two ordinances in the church, in the global church. They get practiced differently, but in our direct context, we take communion every single week as one of these ordinances to say we want to remember where our hope is found. It's found in the person of Jesus and his sacrifice for us. Because the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his followers together and he sat at a table and he shared a meal. And in this meal, he broke bread and he said, this is my body given to you. And he poured wine. And he says, this represents uh, my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. Remember where you have hope. 
It's the only true hope you'll have. And so we take communion as a body and a believers of Christ every single week as we make our way down these aisles and we take a piece of bread which is handed to you from your brother or sister and you just receive it in a posture of humility that there's nothing you did to save yourself. It's only through the blood of Christ that you enter into this new place with this new person as you take that piece of bread and you dip it in the juice and you remember this is where I have hope. This is how I can deal with what is in front of me this week. And man, we have stuff in front of us all week. So we remember where we have hope because of who we have hope in. And then the second ordinance that we practice every couple of times a year is baptism. And baptism is a reminder not only of the death going down into the water, but the resurrection coming up out of the water. And we don't believe here that baptism saves you, just like we don't believe communion saves you. But what baptism is, is it's an identification, a public declaration to say, this is where I find my hope. I've been rescued by the blood of the Lamb, and I'm going to live for Him in the midst of all of you. I want to show this is who I am going after. This is who's gone after me. I've been rescued. I'm identifying with the death and the resurrection of Jesus. I love this quote from Eugene Peterson talking about baptism. He says this. He says, at baptism, a life of sin, rebellion against God, refusal to serve his lordship, and rejection of his love is drowned, and new life in Christ is resurrected out of it. That's the purpose of why we do baptism. So our people that have made a decision for Jesus, that have been rescued by him, they can let everybody know, this is where I find my hope. We have an intentional process here at Redemption Peoria, the way we practice baptism. We can't because the church practices it all types of different ways. And so our process, just for you guys to be aware, as we're going to see three people step into this tank in a minute, is that we have a baptism class. Jim Ellis, who's one of our pastors and elders, he, he teaches this class and it explains baptism. Where do we see baptism show up in the biblical story? Why is it significant? And then how do we actually practice it here in our local context? And in that class, based on the interest, uh, an elder will have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a person that's considering baptism to say, do you really understand? Do you really understand what you're publicly committing to? Are you really rescued? Can you articulate it? It's not just like, oh, my parents want me to do it, or my brother and sister did it, or like I just feel pressured into getting baptized. No, like you understand just like when you walk down an aisle at a wedding ceremony, you're making a public declaration in front of people, this is the person that I am committed and covenanted to. And so in the midst of those conversations with an elder, this back and forth one-on-one -on -one conversation, sometimes it's a green light. Yep, they understand it. Let's put them in the tank. Let's baptize. Let's celebrate their decision. And then sometimes it's a yellow light. I'm not sure. We have conversations with other folks, and, and sometimes like, hey, well, let's actually do this the next time. There's no rush in this. We love you. We want to make sure you're understanding what you're doing in this process. And then sometimes it's a red light to go like, oh, let's just wait a while. Let's have more gospel conversations to you to understand what the implications of this really are. In the midst of that process, one of the things that we use as a tool is the Apostles' Creed. If you're not familiar with the Apostles' Creed, it goes back to uh, really the earliest writings of 140 AD, and it provides a succinct and well-said description of what the baptismal candidates are stating as they step into this tank and submit to the waters of baptism. 
And what we've done in the Apostles' Creed is we just, we, we took it and we made it into three questions. And so in a minute, we're going to spend some time responding both with communion and then three people are going to get baptized. And when we start communion, those three, they can head over to the prayer space And so what we do in the midst of the Apostles' Creed is they'll go over and we'll pray with their family, we'll pray with them, and then the elders will ask them these three questions based on the Apostles' Creed. And they've already heard this in the class, they've heard it in the conversations, they'll hear it again today. Number one, do you believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? And they'll say yes. The second question, do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin Mary? He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. They will say yes. And then the third question, do you believe in the Holy Spirit? The Holy Catholic Church, Catholic just means universal, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting, and they'll say yes. And then we will pray. There'll be a little story of of their journey to accept Jesus and what you can pray for them so we can know as a community, and we'll walk them up, and somebody will baptize them And we'll celebrate their identification with Jesus publicly to say, this is where I find my hope. It's only in Christ. And for us that have been baptized, wherever that was in your life, this this operates as a moment of remembrance for you. When you made that public declaration that you are going to follow Jesus, and maybe some of you are following Jesus more than ever right now, maybe some of you have strayed from that, hopefully this opportunity to see other people step into the tank reminds you of when you stepped into the body of water. And for those of you that haven't been baptized and you claim Jesus, man, we'd love to have a conversation with what that could look like for you. And for some of you that haven't given your hope and your life to Christ, I would just challenge you and ask you the question, where do you get your hope? Because you're running to a well that will not satisfy you, and there's only one true satisfaction that's found in the person of Jesus. And man, we would love to engage a conversation with you, whether it's somebody that brought you to this service or you want to come find one of us, one of our staff. Like We would love to talk to you about the life and the hope found in Christ. So I'm going to pray And then we're going to spend some time responding. I'll give us some instruction. And in that moment, um, the three folks, Addie and Corbin and Micah, you can head over to the prayer space and we'll spend some time praying with you guys. And then we will head into the waters together. Let's pray. Father, would you be with us this morning? God, help us see you clearly in the midst of the hope that we need found in Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22, that it It's not about where we are, but it's about who we're with, and we're with you, and we can be with you now. So help us do that well as we respond in communion, as we respond in singing, as we respond to see people get baptized. God, be with us in this time together. We love you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.